you'll uh, take a Bible now uh, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. If you brought your own or if you have a, a Bible from the pew. Uh, Matthew, chapter 6 is part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, the longest sermon we have by Jesus recorded in the Scriptures. He covers a variety of subjects. And then in chapter 6, I want us to look at verses 19 and following. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. Hear God's word. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that as a result of hearing your word today, that you might help us to worry less and to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen. At this time of year, normally... Uh, we bring some messages and testimonies around what we call a stewardship season, which is um, that we're all to give our time and talent and treasures to the Lord. Typically, the sermons focus uh, on some aspect of money, and I've used this passage before, but I want to change the emphasis very much today because I want to talk about worry and anxiety. Because in the years I've been here, in my 23 years as one of the pastors here, I've never known a time when I hear more people, more of us, express concern about the future and about money and just seem to worry about everything from medical costs to just the whole anxiety about the future. So do you worry? I like what Chuck Swindoll said. He, he wrote, I have never seen a gravestone that reads, He died of worry. But some of them ought to read that way. 
throughout this passage, and I want to focus on verses uh, 25 and following, we have the word worry, as in do not worry or don't be anxious, repeated many times. And our word in English for worry comes from an old German term, which means to choke or to strangle. So they obviously picked a word because that's what worry does to us. You feel at times like, I feel I'm going to choke. I've got to get outside. I am so upset. Worry is a kind of mental and emotional strangulation. It's nearly always extremely small compared to the size it forms in our minds and the damage it can do to us. Someone said worry is barring tomorrow's problems and bringing them into the day. Well... How inclusive is this command not to worry? Jesus says in verse 25, he just summarizes everything by saying, don't worry about your life. He just takes out one term to cover your physical well-being, your mental well-being, your emotional well-being, your spiritual well-being. Nothing in any arena or portion of your life justifies worrying about it. Now, all this is based on what he has said previously. That's why verse 25 begins with that word, therefore, that's like a sign pointing back to what has previously been said. So let's take a moment and look at that. Look at the context that Jesus gives us these words about worry. It's in the context of money. He's been describing the proper perspective about money. He summarizes it in verse 24, saying, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, the word serve there literally means to be a slave to. To be a slave, you can't be a slave to God and a slave to money. It's not a question of advice, like you should not serve both God and money. It is not a command, as in you must not serve both God and money. It is a matter of impossibility. You cannot serve both God and money. The point is there is a throne in your life that is only big enough for one person to be there. It's either God or money on the throne, but they cannot both be. So we ask, because I've never heard anyone tell me, and I've never said to someone else that I serve money. Boy, this verse has application to me. I serve. I've never heard anyone say that. So how do we know? How do we know what we are serving? Well, that's why these verses come. The way we know what we're serving is what do we worry about. Worry is the indicator of who your master is, of whether it's God or money. So let's look at this together. I just Here's my simple approach. We're going to walk through the passage. I'm going to give you four reasons that Jesus gives us not to worry. Four reasons not to worry. And then three helps, three things to help you not worry. So first, the four reasons. The first reason Jesus gives us not to worry is because God is our master, and therefore he's responsible for us, it says in verses 24 and 25. How does God become your master? The message of this entire sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which covers chapters 5, 6, and 7, is how to be right with God. And he gives us characteristics of a person's life who is right with God. So how do we become right with God? The Bible tells us that there is a God who created everything. He created you and me. He created everything we see. He created our first parents, Adam and Eve. And they were alive not only physically but also spiritually. But they disobeyed God, and when they did so, they died spiritually. 
They didn't die physically, that was much later, but they died spiritually. And so they suffered the consequences of their sin against God, which was death. But even in punishing them, God promised a Redeemer who would come later to pay for their sins. And so you and I are born where Adam and Eve ended up. We are born spiritually dead. We have these problems of sin and death. Because you and I sin, God says he must punish that, and the punishment is death. Now, it's natural for us to think, well, I'm a sinner. I recognize that. No one's perfect. But we think, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just moral enough, if I just try and do the best that I can, then God will accept me. But the problem is that all the good deeds in the world, if you could do everything that there is that is good, it cannot do away with your problems of sin and death. Now, thankfully, God is loving and merciful, and he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man. He lived a perfect life. He never sinned against God. He never committed crimes against God. Then he allowed himself to be arrested and put on a Roman cross, and when he was put on that cross, God took my sins and he put them on him, and he punished him in my place. So the death I deserve, God now dealt out to Jesus. He died on that cross. He was buried. Three days later, he came back from the grave. Over a period of 40 days, he appeared to hundreds of people. And the last commandment he gave his disciples is that they were to go into all the world and tell people what God had done so that we could have life with him. So how do you receive this gift of eternal life? And have you received this gift? You must believe that Christ was the Son of God, that he was perfect, that he died for you. And when he died on the cross, the Father put your sins on him and punished him in your place. And now you turn from going your own way, from living according to yourself, and you turn toward God and move toward him. And he becomes your master. And Jesus is saying the first reason not to worry, the first reason not to be anxious, is because who is responsible for a servant? The master is. If God is your master, then he is responsible for you. Imagine a soldier in the U.S. military, and the soldier has, is given clothes and food and weapons and everything that that soldier needs for day-to-day existence. That soldier should not worry about things like that. Why? Because in this case, the armed forces is supposed to be supplying it. Jesus is saying, God is your master. You shouldn't worry about all these things that we tend to worry about, clothes and food and so forth. So when you decide to follow him as master, he guarantees he will meet your needs and take care of you. That's the first reason not to worry. Then in verses 26 and following, he gives a second reason. He says you and I are not to worry because God cares for you. He cares for you. He illustrates this with the things that they could have seen. First, the birds. He was on a mountain. There were many people there. We can only imagine some birds flew by, and he used them as an object lesson. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow in the seed. They're not out there, you know, sowing in the fields. They don't reap. They don't gather in the barns. I don't know about you, but I've never been driving through the country and looked over and seen these little barns about that tall right off the road. And my kids say, what's that? I said, oh, those are some bird barns. You know, they've been reaping and they're stowing up now for the winter. And so they store them all there. No, you've never seen that. The Lord provides them, though, with an abundance of food. And he gives them the instincts uh, to know how to find that food. And and he's saying your heavenly Father feeds them. When you look out your window after you've mowed the grass and there are birds all in the the yard as they intend to be and they're eating the grain and 
and there's a worm. What I should think is God is caring for that bird, and he just provided that food for that bird. Now, they are diligent. They are not lazy. They are persistent in their search for food. So Jesus is not discounting any kind of effort. But his point is, if God so carefully takes care of such a relatively insignificant creature as a bird, will he not do much more for you and me whom he created in his own image? Then he says, you concerned about living long in verse 27. That you cannot add to your life. You can take the, the best care of your body that you can with health and nutrition and so forth. Uh, but he's saying that is up to the Lord how long you will live. And then he says, are you worried about clothing in verses 28? That's the third illustration. He uses flowers. Here are all these wildflowers probably within the eyesight of these people. And he, and he said even Solomon, the great King Solomon, did not clothe himself. Look at the vast array of the beauty and the colors and so forth. And he said for these... These are just alive for a little while, and then they dry up, and then they would take these flowers and they'd use them for fuel, like in a stove. And he says, if God goes to the trouble to clothe them in such an array, will he not do much more so for you? Why are you anxious about these things? Now, most of us have plenty of clothes. But you've got to remember, in Jesus' day, to these people at that time, probably people had one, maybe two changes of clothes. Clothes were valuable. And so we don't have that same need today like many people do and have. Then he goes on and he says, God cares for you, so don't worry. But now the third reason. You're not to worry because of your faith in verses 31 and 32. Regardless of how you want to spin it, worry is a sign of unbelief. It's a sign of unbelief. And he says, okay, that's natural for pagans. Here's this person who claims to believe there is no God. And if there is, then he's, he's not engaged in our lives in any way. And Jesus is saying it's natural then for an unbeliever to worry because they're not looking to any God to provide for them. They are thinking everything happens by me, by my hand. And so he says those who have no hope in God naturally put their hope and expectations in things that they have to do. They have nothing to live for but the present. He says they are ignorant of God's supply. They have no claim to it. They have no Heavenly Father to care for them. So they should worry. There is reason to worry. But he's saying this is foolish for a believer. We are to live in a higher world since we have a Father in heaven. When we went to Haiti, uh, some of us back in the spring, I was talking with a man who accompanied us. He lives in uh, Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, I believe, and he and his wife had adopted a, a girl uh, who was, I think, around 11 or 12 years old out of an orphanage in Haiti, and it had not gone well uh, for the year or two they had had her, and they were going, he was going back to pick her up again. They had sent her back to live with a family, and then she was coming back and bringing a friend with her. But he told me how much they had learned through this whole process. Um, tell you how bad it was. I, I, you know, I said, how long did it take her to pick up English? I said, he said she would never spoken English. I said, did she learn it quickly? He said, oh, yeah, in a matter of months. She was cussing my wife out in English just as fast as she was in Creole. That's how bad it was. And so he, he was going back to get her, but he told me, he said, what we've realized, and he and his wife now teach seminars on international adoption, is these kids have never lived in a family. 
they have no idea about family structure and about authority and family relationships. It's always been with a whole crowd in an orphanage. And so they were working through a lot of these things and things were, were much better, at least by that point. What Christ is saying is, if God's your father, why are you acting like you're an orphan? Why are you acting like there is no heavenly father to take care of you? Why are you worrying about things that an unbeliever would find to worry about? That's the third reason not to worry. The fourth reason he gives not to worry is in verses 34 and 35, and he says, we're not to worry because God will meet your needs as you seek first his kingdom. Seek first, meaning top priority, above all else. Give it most importance. He is saying, rather than seeking and worrying about food, clothes, drink, so forth, as the unbelievers do, he says, focus your attention and hopes on the things of the Lord, and He will take care of your needs. And we're to focus on His righteousness, to put that first. He says this promise, all these things shall be added to you. What things? The things we're tempted to worry about. Food and clothing and so forth. God is saying while we concentrate on the work of his kingdom and his righteousness, he will see to it that your basic needs are met. Now, I assume most of you here have been to church for a long time. or you've, I doubt if I've said anything that you didn't already know. If you've read the Sermon on the Mount, you've probably read it. Many of you have taught it. You've heard ser sermons about it. You know everything I've just said, but we still work. So what I want to do for the last few moments is give you some things that I think can help you and me not to worry. These come from Dr. Martin Louis-Jones. They come from J.I. Packer. They come from James Montgomery Boyce, and I've distilled them down to about three things. You may say, I know all these promises in the Bible. I know God is my Father. I know God is my Master, and He'll supply for me. I know all these things, but I still worry. Is there an answer? First, we must recognize that all the promises Christ makes in the Sermon on the Mount are for Christians only. If you're not a believer, if you've not trusted in Christ and received the gift of eternal life, you have to straighten that out first. If you're to try to take these promises and apply them to your life, these promises from God, in a sense, and I'm not trying to be funny, you're reading somebody else's mail. When someone says, wait, God has promised to take care of all of our needs of all people, then why do some people starve? He doesn't make that promise for all people. The answer is that the promises of God's care are for believers only, for Christians only. They are for those who have accepted the death and resurrection of Christ as the one sufficient ground for their salvation. And so unless you believe these things, these specific promises are not for you. Second, if you are a believer, you need continually to add to your initial experience of salvation all that you can learn about God and his ability to care for his people. One of the high points for me of our worship services is the call to worship. That's not a call from the pastor, from Chip Miller or Eric Ashley. It's not a call to ourselves. It is a call from God. When we view it rightly, that's what it is. Now, one of my favorite calls to worship is from Matthew 11. 
For Jesus said, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. When he says, in other words, you are to learn all you can about Jesus. For as you learn about him, you will grow in your faith and in your trust of him. As we've said numerous times, to know God is to trust him. To trust him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And so we need to know him. We need to know about him and never settle. Some of you have been Christians for 5, 10, 50 years. But you should be pressing on continually, adding to that initial experience of salvation, your knowledge of God, your knowledge about Christ, and his work in your life. Third, well, before I do it, let me give you an example of a man who did that and how God helped him in the area of worry. And it's the example of the disciple Peter. In the early days of Peter being a disciple of Christ, in the early days of his association with Jesus, from what we know in the scriptures, apparently this man worried about a great deal of things. Walking toward Jesus on the water, he worried about the waves. He was worried that Jesus not pay taxes. He was worried about who might betray Jesus. He was worried that Jesus might have to suffer, and so he chose to rebuke Jesus. He was a great worrier from what we know. But after he came to know Jesus better, he learned that Jesus was able to take care of him. And so toward the end of his life, when he wrote the letter of 1 Peter, he tells other Christians in 1 Peter 5, 7, Cast all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Now that's Peter that wrote that. And it's not a play, did you hear me read it? It's not a play on words. Casting all your care upon him, cares upon him, because he cares for you. Different meanings in the original language. The cares there, casting all your cares upon him, is the same term for being anxious or worry in the Sermon on the Mount. Casting all your worries upon him. But the care at the end is talking about God's love for you, that you are on God's mind. We are to cast our cares, our worries upon him. Why? Because he cares, he loves us, he thinks about us. You ever have someone you love and you know that loves you walk up to you and say, you have been on my mind every day for the past week. And you know they mean it. And there's something comforting about that. You and I can go before God in prayer and know we have been on his mind every second of every hour of every day all of our lives. He cares for you. That's what Peter is saying. Therefore, we can cast our anxiety upon him. Now, I mentioned Peter because he didn't start out as a man who was a great peace. He started out as a great warrior, but over the course of his Christian growth, that was an area where he saw great maturity and sanctification. Okay, now, last one. And this is the one I think that's most practical. You must deal with the temptation to worry like any other temptation. Worry seems to be an acceptable sin in the church. If you were to walk up to me after the service and say, I've got to commit a sin to you, can I, we speak in private, there's something terrible that I've been doing. Now, my, my mind would race a lot of places of what you might be getting ready to say. But if you said, I want to confess it to you and I want you to pray for me, I worry Somehow or another, that wouldn't have the same ring as some of the other commandments. 
And yet Christ puts it right in the same category. When you and I worry, we, if we're going to deal with it, we must see it as a sin to be avoided. We must see it as a temptation that must be avoided like other temptations. Flee from lust. Refuse the devil. So how do we do that? With the help of Martin Lloyd-Jones, I'm going to paraphrase some of his words. You and I need to get into the habit of turning to God whenever we feel the temptation to worry. See, you and I have reflexes and conditioned reflexes. You have natural reflexes, like if somebody were about to poke you in the eye, hopefully you just naturally would close it. But then we have conditioned reflexes. From driving a car, maybe you know if you're, you just have a reflex. If, if you see certain things, you put the brake on. You didn't do that immediately when you first began to drive, but you developed that. Toward worry and other temptations, you need a conditioned reflex, and that is the moment I'm tempted to worry, I should have conditioned myself to turn away from such thoughts, to resist that. In the same way, he said, we need reflexes that will turn us to the Lord at the first sign of trouble. We must refuse worrisome thoughts. We must resist them. Faith means refusing to think about things which make us worry. Refusing to think about the future in the wrong sense. He says the devil will do his best to make me do so. But having faith means I will say, no, I refuse to worry. I have done my reasonable service. I have not done, I have done what I believe to be right and legitimate. And beyond that, I will not think about this at all. Now that's faith. And so when the devil comes with his insinuations and his accusations and his fiery darts, then you and I should respond, no, I am not interested. The God whom I am trusting, I am trusting for today, and he will be there tomorrow as well. I refuse to listen, devil. I will not think those thoughts. Faith is refusing to be burdened because you have cast your burden upon the Lord. George Mueller said, where worry begins, faith ends. And where faith begins, worry ends. They, they are mutually exclusive, worry and faith. So your task, Christian, is to train yourself, is to train yourself with practice to turn toward God when tempted to worry. If you do turn to God, you will increasingly come to know that peace that passes all comprehension. But I want to encourage you today, it's a growth process. And some of you have thrown the towel in. And you think, well, that's just my proclivity. It's just my personality. Or my parents were this way. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a worrier from a rich line of worriers. Well, hopefully you don't deal with other sin in your life that way. Well, you know, I just, it's just my habit to think these kind of thoughts or to say these kind of words to people. No, you get to where you tame your tongue, hopefully. Uh, and not say certain things to cut people down. The same way when we're tempted to worry, I think we have to deal with it the same way. This is a temptation, and I've got to either leave this conversation, or I've got to change the subject, or I've got to refocus on something else. The good news is you will get better at that over time. And I want to give you a stellar example in these closing moments, and that's Johnny Erickson Tata. Many of you here have read books or articles by Johnny Erickson. If you haven't, let me just tell you, she's 60 years old this year. When she was 17 years old, she was a popular, very popular teenager. Uh, kind of had it all. And through a diving accident into some shallow water, she became quadriplegic. 
And that was 43 years ago. So not only has she been in a wheelchair for 43 years, for the past 10 years, she has had chronic pain, nonstop. This year, she found out she has breast cancer. And she just had surgery. And she just did an interview that I read two days ago on, a Christ, on Christianity Today's site. It's coming out in the latest issue of Christianity Today magazine. And I want to, I typically don't do this, but I want to read you a few paragraphs of, um, of what she said in response to two questions, okay? It said, How has your perspective on suffering and healing changed since your breast cancer diagnosis? And Johnny said, Thankfully, it hasn't changed at all. You examine scripture again, and you follow every passage regarding healing. I did that with my quadriplegia. I did that again 10 years ago when I embarked on a whole new life of pain. And just a month ago, getting diagnosed with breast cancer, I looked at those same scriptures, and God's words do not change. Even though it seems like a lot is being piled on, I keep thinking about 1 Peter 2.21, which says, To these hardships you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. She says those steps most often lead Christians not to miraculous divine interventions, but directly into the fellowship of suffering. In a way, I've been drawn closer to the Savior, even with this breast cancer. There are things about his character that I wasn't seeing a year ago or even six months ago. That tells me that I'm still growing and being transformed. 1 Peter 2.21 is a good rule of thumb for any Christian struggling to understand God's purposes in hardship. Now here is the second question. Can you elaborate on new ways you think about God's character? She said, in John 14, Jesus says, anyone who has faith in me will do even greater things than these. We tend to think Jesus was talking about miracles, as if Jesus were saying, hey guys, look at these miracles. One day, you'll do many more miracles than I do. The thing that Jesus was doing wasn't necessarily the miracles. He was giving the gospel. He was advancing his kingdom. He was reclaiming the earth as rightfully his. When Jesus gave that promise, he was saying, I'm giving you a job to do. My father and I want the gospel to go forth. And I promise you'll have everything you need to get that job done, and you'll do an even greater job than me. Jesus ministered for three years, and at the end he had a handful of disciples who half believed in him. After Jesus went to heaven and the Holy Spirit came down, my goodness, Peter preaches one sermon and thousands believe. That's greater, that's a greater thing than God wants to do. Or that is a greater thing God wants to do. That's what I've been seeing this past month. Now listen to these last couple of sentences, if you will. She said, every x-ray technician, every nurse, every doctor's secretary, every clinician, every person I meet in nuclear medicine and at the MRI... It's amazing how many opportunities I've been given to see people hungry and thirsty for Christ. I knew that was true before, but there seems to be something special that is accompanying this diagnosis. I'm just so amazed by people asking me, how can you approach this breast cancer with such confidence in a God who allows it? And I'm being given the chance to answer. And she concludes, the greater thing is not the miracle, it's the advancement of the gospel, it's the giving of the kingdom, reclaiming what is rightfully Christ. Now, folks, I write out a manuscript before I preach, and this was my last sentence. 
How does someone develop such faith and confidence and absence of worry as Johnny reflects? And my answer is by maturing in Christ, by practice, by walking him day, walking with him day after day. Christ didn't give us these verses, do not worry, just to make us feel bad for all the worrying we're doing. He's trying to help you. He cares about you. So today, I hope your trust is in him, that you've received the gift of eternal life, that he is your master. And if he is, deal with worry like any other temptation and turn away from it. Turn away from that and turn toward God, your provider. Let's pray together. Our Father, it, it is almost beyond our imagination to think that you, our creator, think about us and that you care about us. And we pray you might, beginning this moment, deliver us from worry and anxiety. We pray for those of us here that seem to be chronic worriers. We pray that you'd give us repentance, that you'd give us hope, that you'd give us faith in you and trust, that we would deepen our understanding of who you are and the way you work. Even as trials, like our sister Johnny Erickson has faced, as we face some that are so small in comparison, we pray that you might help us to have trust and faith in you. And we pray in, in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn was written by a man who had gone through many trials himself. It's a well-known hymn.